Hello, everyone, and welcome to Thrifters Villa, a podcast for resellers and entrepreneurs. I'm Daniela. And I'm Lori. And today we have a very special guest with us. Lori and I are thrilled to be sitting down with Sarah Davis, the founder and president of Fashion File. Fashion File is an e-commerce business that was founded in 1999. Their focus is on selling and buying ultra-luxury fashion brands, including handbags, accessories, jewelry, and watches. Fashion File also has an exclusive re-commerce partnership with Neiman Marcus. Oh my gosh, Sarah, we are so excited to have you on our podcast. Our listeners are going to love your story. We have so many questions for you, so we should just dig right in. All right, everyone, we will see you at the table. Welcome, Sarah. We are so happy to have you here on Thrifters Villa. Well, I'm happy to be here. Thanks for the invite. Of course, of course. So we always start our interviews the same way with everyone, and we want everyone to get to know who you are as a person, as a reseller, as a businesswoman. So share a little bit about you, how you got started, and how Fashion File became what it is now. Yeah. So I grew up um, kind of you know, I guess fairly just middle class, um, but the oldest of six kids. So, you know, if you want nice jeans, you buy your own nice jeans, you get a job. Like my parents weren't giving me money for like clothes and stuff like that. And I was like, I was like nice things. <laughs> I always liked nicer things than I could afford. But I, I learned from a very young age that if you buy things used, you can afford them. So, you know, grew up, in thrift stores, not like my kids do, where it's like ironic and cool and whatever, but like, because that's really what we could afford. Like that's where your money would just go the farthest. And so, um, but always kind of felt like I had an eye and a reputation for really being able to find the good stuff. You know, like I always felt like I had nice clothes and nice things, even though they were all used. It was your secret power. Yeah. And the truth is that it hasn't changed. Like 98% of the clothes that I wear today are used, you know, I still like things that are more than I can afford and, and, and still shop that way. I'll just spend more on something that's even nicer than maybe I would have done before, but I still, I still, you know, shop that way. So, yeah. So I grew up, um, you know, and I think that's obviously part of the, what fueled the business. You can see the seeds of it there, but um, the other part, I think it was helpful to me that I wasn't, you know, handed out money to do those things because it forced me my whole life to my mom would call me industrious because I think there wasn't a word for entrepreneurial (laughs) wasn't a word that they used back in those days I was just always scrappy find a way to make a dollar you know like if there was a you know a parade or fair in town I'd bring a wagon full of soda and sell soda out of the wagon because then I can get money and buy stuff that I I always wanted stuff (laughs) and I never had any money so I was trying to find a way to make a buck. And like, I went to, when I went to college, I went to like a local, um, like, I don't know what you call it. It's like a mini department, like cheap, not a Kohl's, but something like that. And I bought a pair of hair clippers and I started cutting boys hair in the dorm. So I never, I was going to say, they're so smart. Right? I didn't go to hair school. What I did is I had four brothers. And so my mom would cut their hair growing up. And then I kind of filled in as well, cutting their hair growing up just because we never went to get our hair cut because there's six kids. You just do it at home. Yep. So I kind of learned that skill. I didn't, we never went to school, but then I was cutting hair in the dorm and you, 
number one, meet the cute boys, which yay, that was fun. And then, um, and then I'm making money. So just always have little scrappy ways like that to kind of make a dollar. Um, and so then I ended up going to law school. I was a debate nerd in high school, loved that, always wanted to go to law school, ended up in law school and totally loved it. But again, like my husband was also in school, we had no money. And so it's like always that like kind of fueling some of these things that I'm doing, but um, learned about eBay in 1999. And, and it was like kind of a mind blow to me because I was like, oh my gosh, number one, I know how to find a deal like nobody's business. Like I know, and, but I would go to storage. I'd be like, oh my gosh, like a lot of things I would see, I'd be like that's a Prada skirt. That's like, you know, a killer deal, but it's a size zero. I'm not a size zero. Oh, well, I would just leave it there. And then I started just saying, oh my gosh, I've got this option. Now I can sell it on eBay. I, when I first heard about it, I had a bag of stuff I was going to donate, you know, just to a thrift store. And, and, um, I put it all on eBay and I made $200 out of, you know, stuff that was just sitting there ready. And it was nothing luxury. It was like gap overalls. I remember, and a pair of Doc Martin, Mary Jane's. And again, both of those things, my teenagers would want back to right, I was gonna say that Absolutely. is in Absolutely. right now. It's come full cycle, but I've had those Doc Martens for probably 10 years when I did it. And this was in 1999. So they're, you know, old, but, um, you know, it's one of those things where, um, you know, I saw that um, and quickly learned. So I started selling in 1999, sold my own, own stuff and then, you know, shopped for things to sell and was selling women's clothing and accessories. And right away learned that um, clothes are hard. Mm. For me, they were hard. Mm. Um, and really luxury, the better the label, the better it was selling. But the better the label in clothes, the more likely it is to be altered or to have this odd sizing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it just issues with the clothes and saw that accessories are just like one size fit all. They're easy to ship. They're like, their value stays higher than anything else. It just was like such an opportunity. And, and I also saw this little vision just that I've lived my life in like consignment shops. I love resale shops. And you had a resale shop for me. The best part of the resale shop is the handbags. And there's like 12 mm-hmm. and like probably one's fake. And then it's like, eh, it's hit or miss, whether you like any of the small selection relative to the store that's there. And so it's just like, gosh, there's really nowhere that you can just get a really amazing selection of that, of the bags, which I just, you know, always felt was kind of, we, we joke it's the muffin top of the consignment shop, you know, like <laughs> the best little part. Um, and, and so, and on eBay back in those days, you know, this is very early eBay. And so you have to think like Facebook marketplace or like Craigslist, there's no buyer seller protections. There's no PayPal period. Right. I am waiting for you to mail me a check. Right. There are no other options that none of them are in existence. And there's so much trust because you're waiting for the check and you're yeah. hoping as the sender of the check that you'll actually get your item. after. Oh, no, you don't. Back in those days, you don't ship until the check arrives and, right. and it clears. Yeah, so the that's whole a- thing, I mean, for you, for a buyer, you're like annoyed. How annoying yeah. is that? You're like, because the snail mail gets to you and then I'm waiting for a check. And so you're totally right that if it's like, $20 item. I'm just like, hopefully this check clears. I'll just send yeah. it. But like, if it's anything in any value that I'm waiting, which is a super annoying customer experience for you for yeah. a shopper, you're like, Ugh. um, so, but that was like years. And then at the time, nobody on eBay had digital cameras, right? All sailors are using 35 millimeter film and yeah. they're developing at CVS 
onto a floppy disk that you then upload to a photo host because eBay didn't have their own photo hosting. So you're going to like photo bucket or whatever. I mean, it's a crazy world and it was so hard. So a lot of the, what limited even my ability to list at that time where there weren't a lot of, there weren't like, what was really cool when you think about what entrepreneurs are doing over time and on eBay is so many different services that popped up to make it easy for us to mm-hmm. bulk list and to, you know, do things like, again, like photo hosting and things like that. Um, as eBay developed, it made it easier for us to do more. Part of the reason I would, I was taking, when I very first started, I was posting 24 items at a time because that's how many pictures run a roll of film. Wow. And honestly, there was so much about the, the, just the, the process of posting and because it was so antiquated and old and eBay was very basic and there were so many entrepreneurs have come out and found ways to support eBay sellers and resellers in general that make it easy, easier at least. Um, And so over time then I was able to, you know, kind of increase, but for a while, for probably that first year, I was just like, okay, I'll just do 24 items at a time because that was just the easiest way for me to keep it organized and all that. But um, yeah. And so, you know, really kind of grew the business organically, always kind of paying attention to like what was selling, what's not selling, learning and just not buying those things that aren't selling anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, but one thing that was really great is because it was such kind of eBay was such a mess. And I will say that that is not true today at all. eBay is an amazing site. I use it all the time. It's totally trustworthy. Like you can, obviously there's issues here and there, but so many buyer protections and seller protections that it's just safe for everyone. Um, but in those early days, it was not the case. And so it was almost like relatively easier for me to create a safe place for people that because I had, you know, a reputation there and because I had like, um, you know, a return policy that was clear and I, did things to put myself out there just to help people to try to feel like they could trust me in an environment really professional right out of the gate. I was trying. Mm -hmm. I mean, when I say professional, like I'm dying when I look back because back in the day, the, the, the eBay listings were also very basic. There was Mm -hmm. nothing there and your ability to post post photos. Again, it wasn't an eBay system. It wasn't like an eBay photo host. So you're using HTML to upload these photos. And so it can be really ugly. And so I kind of, so I learned like basic HTML in order to create like a template to try to organize. So when I say I'm trying to be professional, I am trying. It's embarrassing to look back at it now. But at the time, it was still forward thinking. It was still. Yeah. yeah. At the time, I think that people could see that I was trying and that it was, you know, and, and I actually felt very professional. I felt like I was really putting myself out there in a way that was, and the retrospect. And I think that's actually a good lesson because sometimes I think that we try, we get nervous and we want things to be so perfect. Mm. And I, I, I know people, I'm like, just get it out there. Just start. Like part of the reason I've been doing this for over 20 years. And so people now will come into the business and like, this is so legit. It's so cool. And it's so, you know, thought out and the foundation is, and I'm like, I've been doing this for so long. Like, and and really, but if you do anything for a really long time and just keep, and honestly, like for me, um, just constantly working on it. And people would be like, you know, I graduated from law school and I was just loving what I was doing. So I never, I took the bar just so I 
just out of pride. So people wouldn't think I didn't, I wasn't a lawyer because I couldn't pass the bar. Right, <laughs> right, right, right. I get it. So I took the, and my husband's like, what are you doing? You know, like, let's get a job now. You've got a fancy degree that like, by the way, wasn't cheap, but by the right. way, it was totally paid off from eBay. Wow. So for my eBay, you know, selling. So I was like, um, but you know, and people would, because at that time I could get a good job. Mm-hmm. And even though I was making money on eBay, when you take out all of my expenses and all that, I was always making money. I was made, was very careful to make sure that I was never buying more than, you know, just keeping a balance on that. And it's really important, even as you're small to keep that profit and loss statement and kind of really record what you're buying versus what you're selling and all that. But when you look at the end of the year, like what the actual profits were very low. And I just could have got a better job, you know, Mm -hmm. like for years. And so even when I was like, I basically from the very beginning have almost grown 50% year over year. But when your first year is like 25,000 in total revenue, and then you take out all your expenses, what's left, even though I had, you know, it was profitable, it's very small. And even if I grow 50% and the next year, it's 36,000 or 40,000, you know, dollars that year, again, take out all the expenses and I'm not making that much money. But when you continue to grow like that over time and you do that for forever, you know, we are, we are today. And so, um, you know, there were just many times over that time period, especially in those earlier years when you're, they're like, Sarah, you know, you, what are you doing? (laughs) Like you, when you, were you in law school, when you started selling regularly on eBay, like, did you have in your mind, like, this is what I want to do full time or like, how did, how did it like evolve from like, oh, I'm going to, this seems like fun, or this is something I've always done to like, this is legit. And I'm going to give it 110%. I I totally gave it 110% because I did think it was legit in that my husband went through school with the military. He was, he's a, do- he's a doctor. I was in med, he was in med school. I was in law school. And basically when I signed up for law school, he's like, I'm going to be a military doctor. Don't think that I'm paying your law school bill. Like this is going to, you're going to have to get a job and you're paying the bill. Like that's part of the thing, which is, you know, I get it. It's fine. It's all, it's my deal. So from the very beginning, I'm like, this is racking up you know, mm-hmm. and, and we had no, we we're in school and no money came in. And so I literally like the other weird thing is back in the day, we didn't all have laptops sitting around. Right. We had one Dell computer. that was about this deep right. you yep. know? Yeah. and we're both in school. So we're sharing this thing. So I did a lot of my listings up in the computer lab at school. And my mm-hmm. classmates were like, what are you smoking? Sarah, you've got like con law on Friday. What is this? Right. All what are you doing? <laughs> the thing that's really interesting for me is that they also said, but wait, can you sell my, eh, you know, yeah. they see me doing this. They're like, wait, you got how much for that? Could you sell mine? I'm like, yeah, I, look, we can work something out, you know? And so it was actually really great. That audience was a really great audience for me. I'd gone, I went to university of Maryland school of law and I had never, I went there for law school because my husband, and I went to school in same area, but I never lived there before. I'm a West Coast girl. So um, I didn't know anyone. So it was a great way for me to know a really great audience of people who wow. needed help doing the same thing. It kind of helped me get started in that way. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's just one of those things where I, I from the get-go was like, what's exciting is to see, whoa, I, I am actually am making money with this. And from when I was back, when I was in college, and again, I always had law school in my mind. And I always thought of myself, 
because I was in debate and all that as like a, you know, with that trajectory in mind, I always would walk by the business school and I would think um, they just look like a bunch of stiffs. Like that's not my people, you know, that like just boring, you know, it's just guys in suits really. And just really didn't seem cool where, um, you know, I feel like that's something that maybe today looks a little different and hopefully isn't the same kind of deal. But at the time I really did feel like that was something that, um, you know, was just not for me. I didn't think they weren't your people. I thought I was industrious, you know, but I didn't you think I was not sure. Yes. <laughs> but I just like scrappy and, and industrious. I didn't think of myself as a business person. And so I wasn't really thinking of, of as a business person today. I might've thought I was like hustling, you know, you hear that word or whatever, mm -hmm. or like just, just scrappy trying to make a dollar, you know, but I really was like, had this like plan to pay off this law school and I was having a blast. Like I was loving it. And I actually loved law school too. I, I, I enjoy that type of thinking and I enjoyed school, but when I was done, I was like, I'm not done. Like I, I looked at, I looked at kind of as my, at the business I was starting as a way to pay off law school mm -hmm. and I paid it off and I'm like, I'm not done here. Like, this is a blast, you know? And that's so exciting. Yeah. 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 How do you think law school helped you do what you do now? Yeah. I, I tell my kids and like other people too, like, I think everybody should take like debate in high school or because the thing I love about law school just teaches, you know, it's analytical thinking. It's thinking of all sides of the issue. It's really, so for me, it, you know, I don't know what the direct correlation other than I love that because it made me even more, they talk about being hungry, like needing to, to grow the business. Like I was really nervous about the fact that we're, I was getting into debt with this thing and that we're not going to, I didn't want to be saddled with debt at a time when my husband's starting a military career. That's not going to be like a ton of money sitting around. I mean, not that the, you know, they do fine. It, military doctors do fine. Nobody's feeling sorry for us. It's good, but it's not like, you know, just a ton of money out to pay big bills off. And so I didn't want to be saddled with that for forever. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and so, but what happened was I, um, things were going really well. I was, you know, I was, it was about the time I was studying for the bar. So it was like 2001 ish or 2000. Anyway, so 2000, I can't remember about the years, but, um, and I, I was like, I'm doing really well with this. I knew it was profitable and that things were, I was making more money than I thought I paid off my loans and you I was were like, still selling like handbags and you had already gone the accessory route or were you still Selling 2001, clothing. I went, I was totally accessories. Okay. So I kind of got off of that. I tried to get off that pretty quick. So I, um, just for me with the way that to keep it organized and all that, it just was easier for me. And I just saw that opportunity, um, that was just more wide open. So, um, I didn't, I was like, I didn't really know. I didn't have any mentors in my life um, that were business people. My dad's a geologist. My mom had six kids and was cranking in the house, but you know, um, I didn't have people in my life on either side. None of my grandparents, I had aunts or uncles that I felt like I could talk about business stuff yeah. and I, and you know, nor their friends. And so I, I actually was like, this is, I was just like, who is like the most successful person I know? <laughs> and there was a guy actually in our church who owned a cancer clinic. He was a doctor, but he owned this cancer clinic, which was more like an entrepreneurial thing that he was building. 
And so I went up to him. I was like, listen, I'm doing pretty well with my business, but I don't really know if my, if the tax structure, what, how I should set up, like, is it an LLC? If I like really get professional with this, like, I don't know what I'm doing. Who do you have or whatever? And he's like, you need to talk to my, this accountant that I work with. Who's just a really good, like small business accountant. I'm like, great. You know? So I go to talk to this guy. I bring my Excel spreadsheet, you know, with my numbers, which he asked me to do. And he was like, blown away. I mean, I was small at the time, but I paid off my loans. I was doing pretty good. He's like, this is legit. He's like, what's your, do you have a business plan? And I'm like, no, yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm like, he's like, what's your, where do you see yourself in five years? And I'm like five years. I'm just not right. Wow. Wow. You know? Um, and at the time, like that didn't mean that didn't mean I wasn't my fashion file is the name for a company because it's our, it's been my, the eBay username. I, you'll, you can look it up. I think it's still in there, but since like 2000, I don't know what that was early yeah. before that it was easy three, eight, nine, eight at AOL.com. My old AOL. Yeah, well, yes, <laughs> but it was like, a, you know, it was, that was, it was just an eBay business that was going well. And I knew it was going well enough that I was, I had registered for, you know, paying taxes and things like that. But I'm like, I don't know what, if there's a structure that's better for tax reasons and all this anyway. So he said, he suggested to me that I read a book called the E-Myth. Um, which is the entrepreneurial myth is what the E stands for. It's an old book that like they read in business school and stuff. And it's basically talks about why most small businesses fail and, and then why others are successful. And, and um, kind of the main thrust that was so helpful to me was um, at that time I was already, I understood, which a lot of, a lot of like scrappy, like solo printers get, and you see this when I'm buying on Etsy or when I'm buying on Poshmark or on eBay, where people think about the packaging, it's not like super professional, but they're getting tissue paper they care about and putting a little note in there. And they're like, you know, they're just putting a little more care into that. And I was doing all that little tags that were, again, I felt very professional. When I look back, it looks very DIY, but it's fine. It was like, great mm-hmm. for the time. Um, but I wasn't really thinking about the five-year plan and all this. I was trying to treat it treat it as a business, but I really wasn't fully treating it as a bit. There was no business plan. There was no like, you know, really organization towards what that meant. So the thing that's so awesome about this book and the main piece for me that just really blew my mind and changed my life, honestly, was it, it says, you know, talks about the fact that most small businesses fail because the person who starts them is a cyclist. They love riding bikes. They you know, they love, they know how to fix bikes and they, you know, they can, they can know all the brands or whatever. And so they think I should open a bike shop. And so then they open this bike shop, but they don't know about like payroll and taxes and, and how you like how the leases are operated and negotiated. And they don't know anything about profit and loss statements and all the aspects about running a business. And then they spend so much time in the business, talking to customers, fixing bikes, working on the bikes and all this that they don't, they don't have enough time to spend on the business because mm-hmm. they're spending so much time in the business. And, and my mind like blew at that moment because I'm taking every photo, I'm right. packing yep. every item, I'm measuring, I'm taping and whatever. And I'm just like, this is me. I'm spending so much time in the business. I don't have a minute to work on the business. And again, like minor improvements here and there I'm making. I'm, I am making some improvements over time, but when you work when you're doing all of it as a solo owner, you don't have enough time yeah. to yeah. spend on the business to really make it a successful business that's going to grow and to develop into something amazing. So it really changed my life. So 
by the next time I, so he, I was supposed to meet with him in six months because he was going to be helping with my taxes every six months. So but the next time I met with him, I'd move my business out of my bedroom, which was a mind blow, which changed my life because I, my computers at the desk at the corner got racks on either side with my inventory, my bags and all that in these. And I'm listening to the emails come in or the, the alerts from the eBay alerts, or whatever, from these messages at like one in the morning, I'll hear them coming uh, in. And I'm just like, you talk about not being able to turn it off. Yeah. <laughs> yeah it was just crazy. And then, yeah. and then the first, the first office I got was a 350 square foot, mm-hmm. which that's like a closet, basically right. tiny room. It had one window and a door. And what it allowed me to do was to hire a couple girls that t- was terrifying. Their girls are in college and they could help him. Like, and the book basically said, what, whatever you can have someone else do, have someone else have do someone it. Someone else do it. Create a systematic approach. And it's terrifying because I was like, I'm gonna have to pay this person. What mm. if I don't have any money? You know, like it was terrifying. And honestly, I didn't really start making any money until I started getting help in the business so I could work on it. And not that I wasn't making enough, I, I was making some money. It was like I said, profitable, but not enough to justify the fact that I'd given up my career and that this was my big deal. It just wasn't successful enough to do that. So got help. The first things I was helped getting help with was listings, which I felt like that was something that was, I could teach and I created. And, and another thing that's in the book, it talks about how like you go to McDonald's in Biloxi, Mississippi, or in New York city or in Encinitas, California, and the hamburger tastes exactly the same. Why? Because they're using the same materials and they have a systematic approach and there's this two pickles and there's a teaspoon exactly of chopped onions or whatever. And it's this total systematic approach. And so it's like, first job you want to pass off, you create a system and then you pass it off. And then it's hard to have that mind shift too, when you're so used to doing it all. And then you realize that there's only so far you can go alone with the time that you have. And you think like, how can I scale? Like, like this year for me, it was cross posting was a way that I could scale without carrying more inventory or hiring anybody. So that was something, but then you do reach a point where you're like, I I need help, whether it's hiring a VA or somebody in person. And I really think that's like the first step because you had the instinct all along to keep going. And I I think that's what I find most fascinating about entrepreneurs is there, there really isn't a handbook necessary. I feel like for me, when I started in reselling, I had the luxury of YouTube to teach me and people, but in 1999, you didn't have that, you know, and you created it. Yeah. And you make all these mistakes. I also, when I talk to people who are just getting starting and reselling, they kind of want to have everything figured out before they list their first thing. And I feel like that must be paralyzing because you know, I, I, I don't know. I think one of the things that I have going for me is I'm not fearful. I'm not afraid to fall on my face and make mistakes. And I am so far from a perfectionist. Um, and I feel like I live in the gray area. So I'm, a, I'm, I'm okay with moving forward with stuff and I make a ton of mistakes in the process, but then you learn and you change and you grow and stuff. And you just kind of had that going for you the whole time, even to seek out mentors when they weren't in your natural surrounding to find people to help you to the next level. I think it's so impressive. Lauren Michaels from Saturday Night Live, he's got this famous quote where he says, the show doesn't go on at 1130 because it's ready. The show goes on because it's 1130. Mm, Right. 
and, and, the, and the truth is it's like it's that's kind of how it is it's like I think we get so nervous it's like it's not perfect at 11 30 that's not why the show goes on it's because it's live and the show starts at 11 30 so it's going on and there's you, insanity in the background right <laughs> you can continue to nitpick and perfect and and you know this like thing for forever and honestly part of it is this iteration process as you put it out and then you're not happy with some part you can over time make incremental improvements that, you know, you're learning from every single interaction you have. Mm -hmm. I mean, even sometimes a terrible sale that something goes horribly wrong. And sometimes that means you sold something for way too little money or, you know, they're like, wow, what did I do? And then, or something where you lose a bunch, you bought something for a ton of money and you're not able to sell it. All those experiences, as long as you or learning from documenting and learning from those experiences experiences and honestly it's it's a lot of work like part of me is like oh my gosh this is weird because i have i'm not a photographer i'm not a, so many things right but i got really i had this systematic way of that i would put this like piece of poster board up against my kitchen counter and then I, the type of camera and the lights it just my pictures looked really good according to me my pictures look really good. And people would say, your pictures look really good. Like how, what camera use all this stuff. And so I felt really like good about my photos. I'm like, I can't teach someone else to do this. Mm. This is gonna, they're not gonna care as much as me. I'm not even a photographer and I'm thinking this. Right. You can, you can. Someone else can learn that as good as better than you if you figured it out, you can. But it takes a little time to say- It may not be the first or second or third person who gets it either, you know? And. Yeah you kind of learn how you are as an instructor. Like when I, when my assistant comes, she's just a high school student who helps yeah. me. There are things that I'll see when she sends me the pictures. I'm like, I never went over that with her. Like, that's why she's doing it this way. And it's an easy tweak, but until, you know, yeah, it's, it's taking not, time. Because to me, they're not going to care as much as you. And that's okay. They have to care enough, you know, they have to care enough. But they don't have to care as much as you because nobody will, you know? And so, and honestly, there's some parts too that you can hold on to longer that you think this is actually super important. I never let anybody make any buying or pricing decisions for a long time because I was concerned with that part. And so, you know, for me, especially when I'm growing slowly and didn't have a ton of employees and getting start with like, you know, shipping and photo and those types of things listing, which is, you know, those types of things were easier for me to pass off, create systems around those. And then other parts, which take longer to learn and, and there's just bigger risks in getting them wrong. Those you can hold on to for longer. Cause that's kind of what that, you know, the book was saying, those things you can get rid of do, but that doesn't mean you're a valuable part of the growth and development of this business. So that's not getting rid of everything. There's parts that you want to keep. Um, and I just think it's a constant development mm-hmm. and just, you know, and, and that's, that's what I love. I kind of love about, um, you know, take the long game and, and really, it, I, I, would, I don't know why I, I've never really gotten like a burnout because it's fun for me. And I don't know what that means. I don't know why it's fun for me. I don't know why, why, like, I like thinking about it. Like I, I, my goal is like, I'm on vacation. Don't think about it. Like don't, or I'm like at a football game, watching my son play football, just watch the game. Don't be thinking about this thing. Yeah. And it's, you know, and, I, and that's kind of a goal. That's like my, the hard part for me is because I actually do love it. But that's, so, the be- that's the beauty of it to find yeah. something that keeps you up yeah. at night. I think, you know, yeah. because 
some people go their whole life and, and they get that degree and they go in the direction that they thought they wanted to. And they might like it. Like I, Daniela and I are both teachers by trade. Yeah. I loved teaching. I think teaching helps me in what I do now. Um, but I, 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 I don't have the same passion for that as I do about my business. And I feel fortunate that I found something at this stage in my life that makes me tick and you found yeah. it early on and some people never find it. And so it, but then that it becomes the balance, right. Between trying to, you know, it's hard to turn it off. Yeah. And this is where I struggle because I don't resell full time. Well, I guess in theory, if you look at the hours I put in, I yes, I do resell it full time. Um, but it's not my full time job. I work outside the home. I'm a state employee. Um, but a part of me has always wanted to go the business route, has always wanted to be the inter- entrepreneur. I've always resold things yes. as at the young age of 16 on Craigslist, on eBay, on Amazon with my books. I've always done it. And when I finally found reselling as what we know it, right? Because I didn't know that that's what it was called. I I just sold things for money. I wanted things. I needed to pay for things. And that's what I did. Um, So here I am now at 34 and I've been doing the real reselling, right? For the last two years. And I'm like, well, wait a minute. Like if I can grow this the way that I want to grow it, like maybe in 10 years or maybe in five years, I could be in the spot where maybe it's not, maybe I'm not just selling um, thrifted items. Maybe I'm going in a different direction. Maybe it's, I don't know, maybe I'm creating products. Maybe I'm working with different companies. Like there's so many possibilities out there that I could still make it my own business, but I've branched out a little bit more. And I'm kind of in this weird place where I know I really love luxury. I know I really love fashion. I've always loved fashion. I love looking at trends. I love doing all that, but I don't know where I necessarily fit yet, but I feel like reselling has kind of launched me in that direction to maybe think outside the box and maybe working the traditional nine to five isn't necessarily for me. Yeah. You know? I mean, it's, it's so cool. Cause I feel like the night you're nine to five. Cause for me also just like, sometimes your nine to five is kind of your seed investor. Like right. I always feel like not, we don't have the luxury. Like we didn't ever get investor money until we we're 21 years in the business. You know what I mean? But the thing that's so cool is that you can do as little or as much as you want at whatever phase you're at. And, and you can do a lot of iterating and trying and dabbling and perfecting and, and use your job to fuel the other business mm-hmm. until you're like ready to jump, you know, over, right. but not a minute too soon. Like, you know, and, and so I feel like you can, you can just um, balance those things out. And again, Sometimes you get out of balance and you're like, whoa, I am. And then you can pull it back or whatever, but it's a real, really like amazing. I tell people all the time when they, you know, I'm like, for me, eBay was my incubator. You know, people talk about like, they go to like Y Combinator to start their startup, you know, what are some like incubator? And I'm like, eBay was my incubator. And we didn't have YouTube videos, but we had like discussion boards where we're all trying to figure it out and like coming together. And then as we got tools and over time, I still, I'm looking at YouTube videos today, like, because the business is different this year than it was last year. And two years ago, you can hardly recognize where we are today. You know what I mean? Like, so we, you're constantly evolving and whatever you're doing right now in five years, you're going to be, it's, a, it's, you're still iterating and, you know, and it's like almost every business, you know, three years out, unless you're just like GM or something, right, right. it's just a, it's almost a totally new business in three years. So, and if it's not, it's not really a business. Like, I feel like 
to kind of stay competitive and be growing, you've got to be iterating and growing. And whether that's like what you're talking about, like cross-selling or, you know, trying new lines. I like tell my kids and friends and all that people that I mentor, just go ahead, just go forward with something. Like for me, I went forward with law school and along the way, I found these other things and I went forward in one way on eBay and that wasn't where I landed, you know? And so I think as you go forward and you're dabbling in things, you're going to, the other thing that's great about that, you're going to see things that don't work. And to me, when you see something that doesn't work and you feel how that feels, Mm -hmm. you're really going to resonate with the things that do work. You're going to be like, whoa, that felt good. Like that is, whoa, that was easier and better because you've experienced this thing that wasn't working. Right. Um, And so for me, that was always like, I did have done so much of that, that, that I feel like those hard things and those things where I'm like, oh my gosh, that was traumatic. And that was a bad decision. And that, why did I do that? And that was a waste of time, but then it makes the, the good, right way to go so much more obvious. Hmm. So, yeah. It's just, it's, it's fascinating to hear how you got started. And now, I mean, so now we have fashion file. Yeah. So when did fashion file become what, as we know it today? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, it, I grew, so, you know, moved the business to Beverly Hills in 2006. So we had, we've had a physical like studio, like we call them selling studios where you can walk into, into fashion file and we'll write you a check on the spot. So that's kind of different than a consignment model. Right. Um, so we, we launched our website in 2007 and about that time opened our first physical location. And it's not like a normal physical location in that we're really not trying to sell anything in those locations because the world is our marketplace online. Like that's the, that for us, that just works the best. But, um, but we wanted to have a spot where people could conveniently drop off stuff to us getting things to fashion file from then to now is a cha- it's a chore for you. It's like drop off your dry cleaning, go to the grocery store and like go to UPS and drop off your box. I mean, what, a, you know, how can we make that as easy as possible? And so we're like, well, we're already operating. Why not just do it in a way that's more public so people could come in and in Beverly Hills, it's like, it was an easy place. There's lots of bags around. Spot. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, and so, and then we opened our second store in San Francisco in 2018. And again, these are not, we're selling all online, but you know, if you happen to see something when you come in, you could buy something, but there's like at the time, thousands of items online and there's 150 on display at the store, you know, it's just, it's not the chances that someone local is going to say maybe, but anyway, and then, um, we moved the business. We kind of realized at that point that there's so much about our business that's that's really labor intensive and operationally intensive, meaning, and there requires so much. We talk about like teaching systems and training. Some of those things are jobs that actually, when you develop a really great system around photography, use certain cameras, have a certain system, packing and shipping, give them the materials, have a systematic approach. Those are kind of easy to teach and train fairly quickly, you know? Um, And then there's other parts of the business that require a very long runway. They're the parts that I held on to the longest before I passed them off. And to do that was, took a lot of time and training. And I, and then also we had to get to the point where the training, where we could do that fast enough and, and good enough that if I wasn't going to feel bad if somebody had a baby and wanted to, I want to celebrate you, take maternity leave and, and right. maybe don't come back. 
and or you do i would love to have you back but um and i don't want to feel like that was like a heartbreaking devastating loss of our time and training i wanted to feel like i can we can train more people that it is not all on the people that because that's really risky if, if you you know um and so what we decided was a kind of a hub and spoke approach because we really like this idea of having these studios where people can walk in we hope 85% of our inventory even today is people using our Opera website and shipping us stuff from your closet to, to us. Um, and we hoped that people would who don't want to do that. There's like just there's just people, especially when you sell luxury, ultra high net worth individuals that are not ever going to download our app and sit in the closet and take a bunch of photos mm -hmm. and upload them, wait for the quote and ship it. They're not doing it. And so where can we? be that they can just dump it off to us the hard part is getting the authentic good stuff we can worry about the rest you know and take all that off your plate so we opened that we were so by 2007 we were rodeo drive in wilshire on a second floor part of the reason we were second floor in many of these locations is because nobody liked resale in the early 2000s we couldn't get a lease nobody wanted to a reseller it was a dirtier world. It was like, right. I want to open a thrift store, Rodeo and Wilshire. No, that's not happening. How did it feel to be on Rodeo Drive? Like your 15 year old inside, like just like no, no, super exciting. And we felt amazing. But again, we were second floor. And the thing is for us, that's cool, but it was fine because it's kind of like, we didn't want to pay for first. We couldn't afford right. the main floor anyway. So it was like right. a third or a quarter of the price. Yeah. And then also there's no like, there, when you're on the first floor, there's a lot of security issues with smash and grabs and all that that we're we're protected from. Mm -hmm. um, and then really to do business with us, we don't need a looky loo walking by and you know what we really need to make an, to do business with us is you need to bring the backpack, the Louis Vuitton backpack that you never wore, and the Gucci belt that was too small, and the um, you know Tiffany earrings that you're grandma gave you that you whatever we need you to bring those things with you and that's not something you're just like walking down rodeo and like take off your belt and like right. dump out your person <laughs> so you have to have an appointment anyway so it was fine but so we opened so we're beverly hills then we opened in san francisco in 2009 and then 2012 we moved the headquarters to carlsbad and we did this because we decided to do the hope and the spoke and hub approach where procurement, the people who are buying and quoting, the authentication team and all those folks are in one place. Mm -hmm. We couldn't train these people at that time in all of these different locations and really open it up. So we said, well, let's do all that in one area and then we'll just ship the stuff here that we get from the, and then everybody online can ship here. Um, and so that was 2012, 2018, we opened in Madison Avenue, New York. And then in 2019, so that's like, 20 years from our founding, we finally sought investment money. And we had had our first call, talk with an investor in 2007 with Tech Coast Angels. They reached out and were looking to invest in a company that was doing something like we're doing with this long conversation, but we were profitable and we were growing 50% year over year. And so we said, why take an investor? Is going to take right. some property. We don't need it. So we did that. We had calls with investors throughout the years. And finally, 2019, uh, 2018, we realized that there's things we wanted to do for the business to really grow. We realized that there's companies that have raised hundreds of millions of dollars in the resale sector that are using that money to great, gain awareness that 
could have and should have been ours and that we were kind of allowing them to have because we weren't really competing. We didn't have a marketing department at all until wow. the wow. Neiman Marcus deal in 2019. Wow. I was posting every single Instagram post. And again, oh my God. That's still on <laughs> me. Like crazy. No, it's nuts. Yeah. So anyway, so 2019. You, I mean, to grow that much in your marketing, like that's amazing. Well, I mean, and, it, and the thing is, is for us, what's really hard because we sell ultra luxury accessories. So our average selling price is $1,400. It's very high yeah. in my real life. My friends don't buy the things that I sell. Mm-hmm. They do now because they've got a friend in the business. Say they have you. They don't do that. And it's mm-hmm. not, it's not something that it's very hard to market to the type of person who buys five thought to find them in the world, mm-hmm. to, you know, as a general. So what we realized is, and this is something that everybody we did from day one that everybody, any reseller can do is that you realize that the one person we do know how to find is that person who buys from us. Like if you're buying the Chanel bag, we have number one, I know you've got one bag to sell us. You've got the Chanel bag. We just sold you. And from day one, when I was back in Maryland selling there, I had a piece of paper that went out in every box. And on one side, it said, I want this back. You know, let me know when you're tired of this. I want to buy it back from you. And, and, and then by the way, I know if you bought this, you probably have other stuff in your closet. Let me know if I can help on the back of that piece of paper is a consignment agreement. And so I would send this out with every box. That is genius. Yeah. Right. And so this is like early day, but I'd say, if you've got, if you're buying a Chanel handbag, you've got the Gucci slides, you've got the other stuff. It's not that all your money went into one bag. Um, and then I printed that thing off on pink paper because I, I wanted to kind of have a really like, like notice when I'm getting a box in the mail and it's in pink paper, it's someone that I met from one of these. And t- cause I didn't have technology to tie these accounts together or anything. So I'm like, who is this? You know? And then I'm like, Oh, it's on pink paper. Who is this? I'm look on eBay to see who I'd sold it to that was now sending me stuff. So it was just a very kind of organic thing. We do that to this day. We've done it from the beginning and we've done it to this day. Cause like I said, you can, when you're, when you raise hundreds of millions of dollars, like some of our competitors, you can do awareness building campaigns like TV ads. And you're, there's like less than 1% of the market who's buying what we buy. So you're wasting a lot of money doing that. And when you're bootstrapped, you don't have money to do, you don't can't afford that. We need to spend a dollar and bring back in a dollar plus because we need the dollar back and we need our margin right. on top of the. So it's like, we, we can't afford to do that when you're bootstrapped, when you're, you don't have investor money spending other people's money. So to us, we said, what's the best way we can market? We can be good to you. You came to us. We know you're our people. Try to be good to you. Try to pay you faster. Try to pay you more, you know, do that. And then give you a good experience on the buying side. So we've got anybody who buys from us or anybody we sell, you know, who we, who we um, buy from, those people are all our people. We already know that. So it's like, it's, instead of fishing with a net, you're fishing with like a, like a fly fishing. <laughs> mm-hmm. Because people who carry, people who buy a Chanel bag from us or sells a Chanel bag, their friends do too. They're not doing it because they're just like the oddball in Birmingham, Alabama, who like carries a Chanel bag. No, her friends also do. Her mom does. Some people around her, do, she's more likely to be our kind of people. And that's something you see now with like Facebook ads and things like that, where you can 
you can actually target. You can target, and we do this all the time. We target to our customers, mm-hmm. people interact with us and their friends, and that's it. Like, I don't know anybody else. I don't know to spend to spend money on marketing to other people. I don't know if that's going to come back. Right. So, but we know if we spend money targeting, this is again, we didn't start doing this till just a few years ago, but just the idea of, tar- of reaching out our own customers and then, and their friends. And when I say we didn't, we didn't do that with like ads, but we've always done it with like newsletters and, you know, mailers and things like that. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What are your thoughts on Chanel? Is it worth the hype? Classic I, Chanel double it platform. Is. It's just, it's just really, because people talk, people always talk about how the Birkin is like the, you know, the investment potential of a Birkin. But the truth is, is that a Birkin is an investment. When you buy a new Birkin, if you just keep that sucker in the box and just put it on a shelf and never touch it, kind of like a pair of sneakers, like my son loves dunks. And, you know, if you, buy dunks and you keep them in the box and put them on the shelf. But if you wear them, if you carry them, you know, if you carry that Birkin around, you can lose like this. I'm saying you so could literally, if you wear your Birkin, like a normal person and use it, it's, it's going down in value. Like every other thing we sell Birkins that are 50% off retail because they've just been carried. They're not trash. They're just not new. Right. So I, the Chanel, Chanel flaps really do keep their value so well. It's, it's hard. They, they're so consistent in their price increases. Their, um, you know, quality is there. I have a little Chanel mini, like I wear it like a little crossbody. It's a little mini flap. I bought it used of course, and I've had it for probably seven years. And if it's, if you buy Chanel caviar leather, I am hard on my bags and it looks fantastic. Caviar is much more durable. Caviar is much more durable than lambskin. I can't do lambskin. There's, I can't do lambskin. I can't do Louis Vuitton Pachetta. I can't do either because I'm just hard on bags. So I'm just not going to, I want it to look nice and I want to beat it up. (laughs) And you can beat up, you can beat up um, Chanel caviar. It's amazing. It's really Mm -hmm. quality, durable, you know, that just lasts and lasts. So Lori and I talk about, Chanel bags all the time because they're both on our list. Like we, you know, Daniela more so. Daniela is yeah. more classic. Yeah. I like the Chanel. That that's that's yeah. what I want. You know, it's on my. That's my epitome. Like I'm gonna save all my reselling money once I pay off all the debts I need to pay off, and I'm gonna yeah. buy myself a Chanel. Like that's and on I, my. And I will say this too: a hundred percent. If you buy it used, if you're looking around and getting a deal, which you can, then you buy it used. You just are not gonna lose. You carry that right. thing for a couple of years, and you sell it, and you're gonna get your money back. It's like yeah. you're getting free bag. I mean, so I know it's just definitely, I mean, if you buy a new Chanel bag and you sell it right away and it's a, it's a, it's a, um, like a new, like a, a new classic, like just new condition classic yeah. and you sell it right away, you can still make money on that. But like, otherwise you're gonna have to hold on to it for a while to really keep the investment value. But if you buy a pre-owned black caviar or some, you know, standard, more, more, um, staple color. Yeah. It's like, you're gonna have a free bag. So. I know. 
It's on the list. Pre-owned. I would never buy a new one. I would I would only buy pre-owned. For sure. For sure. Using fashion file. No, yeah, do. Or I I mean, I I I will say I buy from every reseller online. Like I have no, I would never buy a Chanel bag from the real real, but I do buy all my daughter's Doc Martens on the real real because they're half off. I'm not gonna buy them new. <laughs> so you know, like I buy, I love thread up, I buy so much on thread up, you know, and I love just shoving clothes in a bag and sending to shut thread up and they give me like three dollars for the entire bag and I'm fine. Thank you for taking them. Uh, and I, and I, it's not have all clothes, like some clothes that I really, that I'm like, I'm not going to, they're going to give me 30 cents for this. And I, I will keep those, but like, I love it and use all of the sites. So do you still sell on eBay, Poshmark, anything like that? I don't sell on any of those sites because number one, I have children who sell my stuff and then I give them money. <laughs> so I don't do that. But my, like my son who does the, he loves sneakers. I'm not buying him dunks because they're expensive. So he buys his own used dunks and then he cleans them up like a little, you wouldn't believe the work he, the job he can do on dunks. And then he'll like be able to buy his, he, he does it so he can wear dunks and then yeah. he sells them and then he sells my stuff. And yeah. I was curious if any of your kids are, are in on it, if they're inspired yeah. by you. And- my kids all have, my kids have all worked in the business. All of them have worked in the business, but um, I don't, my kids are all like, they all are like science and math people. They're not like, they got that from their dad. And so we'll see if it, we'll see if they, where they end up, but they do like making a dollar though. So <laughs> they like, never know. You they never like know. making money. <laughs> yeah. I have a question in regards to authenticity, because sure, I think yeah. this is a big thing. It's a big topic in the reseller community, right? Like, oh, I saw this Prada bag or Prada shoes and I have no idea if it's authentic or not. And, you know, there's a million things you can research online and you can, you know, watch YouTube videos and all of that. So how does Fashion File handle authenticity? Yeah, I mean, that's really like for us, from the very beginning, that was kind of the sweet spot that gave me a place that was in those early days of eBay when it was, it was kind of a cesspool. Mm-hmm. And I felt like we were like, like this Island retreat in the middle of this crazy mm-hmm. partially is because the, one of the first things I did was posted when eBay had released like eBay, that reviews and guides. I don't think they, they don't even do that anymore, but they allowed creators like to post guides. And so I posted all these like tutorials on how to buy authentic. And basically it was like, if you don't buy from me, use these guides. Cause it's crazy out there. Be stay safe and use this before you're buying on eBay. Cause it's crazy. Um, nowadays there are so many, you know, tool there's like, there, if, number one, if you're gonna spend any significant money, pay for authentication. Cause there's a lot of paid authentication services that are good. And those services are used by um, courts and credit card companies and they're viable, you know, um, companies. And so if you're doing, if you're gonna, if you're looking at, if you're at a thrift store and you're looking at spending three bucks on something, buy it, come home, do all the research. And if you find out it's fake, you've lost and you've learned, you document that don't do it again. Right. Not a big deal. But if you're looking at something where you're like, wow, I have the opportunity here. I remember when I was, you know, back in those early days and I wasn't even selling it out of thrift stores, but I was, went to a Goodwill and they had this, they had like an auction, which is an odd thing where they had a case of stuff and they were taking silent bids. And in it was a a Louis Vuitton set, which I'd never seen. I mean, like I, I knew it was authentic, but I'd never seen it in a Goodwill store before like, like this. And it was like a red Epi set, like the bag and a couple accessories or whatever. 
but like they there are things like that you can find in thrift stores there's authentic i mean there i've seen many an authentic hermes scarf in my day because people just don't understand there's significant value there but um but that it was it was a silent auction and i think i paid like 700 bucks for all the parts of it and then i sold it for like two to three times that much so it was like totally a steal of a deal for me yeah. but like there's real opportunities in that but if you're going to pay 70 you know 700 pay to get someone to authenticate you know using pictures and things like that and you can rely on that we you know obviously in-person authentication is is ideal and that's optimal um but th it's it's actually very reliable to get that um you know photo authentication there's a lot you can see online you can there's a lot you can learn online doing your own research but for us especially if you're if there's something where you're getting into something and this is what you're going to do just the idea of i've been documenting that starting with those ebay guides back in that early 2000s till today we have so much information compiled and now we have an entire team and their entire job is creating these materials that they're using to train so that we can we can't scale as a business if our authentication team isn't scaling isn't isn't you know just growing all the time if we're growing 50 percent year this year our authentication has to be able to grow that fast right and we can't make any mistakes so it's and what what's exciting today and and again this is different than it's different from your question for fashion file what's exciting is because we have we do have the scale we do there's so many cool tools and options you know technology available that's just been so helpful um but as a reseller there's so many more tools available today than we, than I had available when I started you're fine you're fine like you can be willing to pay for the money if you need to get that authentication and then there's there's a lot of information out there that you can learn it's, I think we both Daniela like I I got like a Gucci bag for 30 or 40 dollars at an estate sale and it was authenticated online with realauthentication.com yeah. I don't know I mean all yeah. was well it seemed for okay sure. and I just included a photograph of the certificate when for I sold sure. it um yeah. but then recently I, I found an Hermes vest um like in the children's section somewhere which I'm pretty sure is authentic but I went back to them and they charged extra because they needed extra staff or it was like a higher pay grade for whoever can authenticate Hermes. So then I thought, well, maybe I'll just send it in somewhere. Yeah. Well, I will say there's other options. Like sometimes people have different, they'll, they'll for Hermes charge more or, and there's just nowadays there's just options. There's probably 10, you know, online re, um, authenticators out there and that's all they do. They're learning all the time. It's reliable. So, you know, but I always tell people, I'm like, authentication is a science, but it's not rocket science. You can, you can learn it. You know, I didn't go to the Stanford School of Authentication and start my job. I started learning kind of like anyone else could do, um, you know, and part of that even is, um, you know, taking something into the store. And there's some awkward moments in my life where I'm just like, oh, I'm sucking it up. And I'm going to do this awkward moment and see what are they going to do? Throw me out. Okay, fine. You know, like, right. cares, you know, never going to see them again. Um, right. But yeah, it's definitely learnable. And then there's so many more tools today, even if you don't want to learn them, because I know that some people it's like, you don't want to, for me, I want my son to have authentic Nike dunks. I don't want him to wear fake ones, even if he's buying $70 trash ones that he's going to fix up and whatever. 
but like, I don't want, if I'm buying them, I'm not going to learn Nike dunk authentication. I don't want to do that for my career. There are places out there that I could get the dunks looked at and then I feel comfortable and I'm not going to try to, I'm not investing the time if it's, it's not going to pay off over the long haul because I'm not getting into dunk authentication. That's right. not my, there's lots right. of people out there who do that. Um, but yeah. Yeah. I, I think that over time for me personally, I have learned to authenticate things on my own because yeah. I enjoy that aspect of reselling. I enjoy the luxury market. I like, you know, learning about the history of the brands and the labels and how they've changed and what the stitching looks like and what the material should feel like. I like going into the stores and doing market research that way. I do that quite often. I'll go into, go into Boston and I'll go into the Chanel and I'll go into all the different stores and feel the product and see the product. And, you know, like that's how I have learned personally, but I have used authentication services because some of those dupes out there are really good and it's hard to tell sometimes. Oh, it is. It a hundred percent is. Yeah. And it, it's, you know, that's why there's some things for me where I'm just like, and even with like, when we first started taking Hermes, um, Hermes and we, cause I started one brand at a time. Like I, you know, and even we have the same kind of systematic approach today where we don't have to start accepting brands until we built an entire authentication around it. And we only accept 51 brands. So right. it's a very limited number, partially because people will come to us and they've they're like, I spent $11,000 this bag in Italy. I'm like, I, we don't have authentication for that. So sorry, we just don't do it. We right. can't rely on other people's authentication at this point, just because we're a different stage or whatever. So, um, but for in the, those very early days, when we started taking Hermes, we would authenticate it. And then we would pay to get a second opinion on every single one, just to make sure because in the, you know, and, and we just take a loss on the fact that that's going to be a loss on every, because we're like, we can't make a mistake on that. Mm -hmm. And then we would also, um, you learn, you know, then in that process, if, if you, you're like, I think this is real, what do you think? And they're like, no, that's not real. Like, oh my gosh. Okay, good. You know, we're not paying for that item until it's authenticated. Um, but we've, we've learned a lot and we paid for that and it's just part, kind of part of the training. So and that's gotta be a part of your business. That is so, I mean, you have to invest in that, right? Because yeah. that, and that's your credibility. And that's also why people trusted you and kept coming back to you and exactly. you were able to grow because you, you made yeah. that such a priority. You know? I mean, interestingly, I only sold, I started out selling Louis Vuitton and sold that alone for years, one wow. brand one brand. Cause I was like, I don't feel comfortable. And then slowly learning next brand Chanel and then slowly learning. And honestly, years with very limited brands, you know, and other, I think nowadays you can go a lot faster because there's more, there's more information out there, but there was just nothing available at the time. So, um, you know, yeah, I remember finding a Montclair, um, puffer jacket at the Goodwill outlet. So I paid like $2 for it and it was filthy, but I said, you know, this is worth yeah. taking home. And, um, but I was able to go online and somebody somewhere, I don't know if it was, I don't even think it was YouTube. I just think it was a website, but they had like seven Montclair labels through the years and, and the date next to it. So it made it okay from like, sure. I, mean, it's, I authenticated it in a sense. I think I probably still put a little disclosure note in there yeah. and I decided to like really go in and clean it. And I went through, and then I found a Goyard bag, which I'd never seen in person before. Yeah. And that was fake, but I still took it home and read about it because it, you know, it's a cheap investment <laughs> to learn. Mm -hmm. Right. Not and I would I, consider myself an authenticator in either of those things, but I mean, it, it just, 
there are there are tools today today if you care you can find out and and sometimes you can find out from finding websites that have really clear real fake comparison photos and all that and you yeah. definitely can today there's just enough information out there that you can if you care either find the information online or pay someone to get it done and so there's really today not not an excuse not to have that really dialed in and you can do it. And then, and even if you are paying someone for authentication and you just take it as a, as a loss because you are learning. So it's not a loss. It's because every paid authentication is so helpful mm -hmm. for you to gain that knowledge and really learn and touch and feel that authentic item and really learn about it or the counterfeit. I mean, how much do you learn from the counterfeit Goyard? You learn what yeah. are you looking at? It's very helpful. I'm also extremely discouraged. Um, I've been I've been looking for a um, pochette Matisse in black. Yeah, and um, I I saw one on Louis, on Poshmark, which is my yeah. main platform, and it was like sixteen seventeen hundred, so less than what I'm seeing at like the real on the real websites. And I paid for it, and the order was canceled immediately. Um, I don't know I don't know what the incentive is for the person to just cancel immediately but it was, it was a fraudulent thing and and it was right next to a score of um fake bags for 295 dollars on poshmark and i know they've been reported mm -hmm. i personally reported them and every single day when i do a search for this bag they uh -huh. come up every day uh, and it, so it many tells me to work for a platform yeah yeah that that just like doesn't shut these people down, doesn't take yeah. it. And I know if it's over five hundred dollars, we send it to Poshmark, and I pray that their authentication team is legit. Yeah. But like, it's really discouraging to right. be on the platform it's to to actually click the button to spend seventeen hundred dollars on something and then not yeah. get it. It's canceled. The woman blocked me. Other yeah. people had written that she had. It was just such this odd experience for me as a buyer and someone who this is my main platform that I sell on and then and this is why i am i will turn to a fashion file because yeah. i know yeah there's there's not going to be anything dicey there and i may pay a little bit more but you yeah. get what you pay for well, and that's that's kind of the thing too for me that that got that forced us off ebay at an earlier date then mm -hmm. because i really like the the marketing aspect of selling on platforms but what's what's unfortunate is that when someone buys on eBay or another platform and has a bad experience, it gets them turned off in general to the idea of buying secondhand, which is that's what I think is that's what's so upsetting about. And it's hard. I, I mean, I think eBay has done a really, really great job. I think they're they're they've been doing it longer than anyone else. So they're kind of I, I feel like they do a you know better job than most. Um, but that's kind of the game that, that I think they're all fighting against and try to make improvements. And it's better today than it was last year or five years ago, still room to make, because again, anytime people has, have a bad experience online, then that is, you know, I've heard people say, I'll never do it again. I, yeah. you know, I bought this bag. I'm never doing that again. I, I don't think I will. And I mean, it's, it's what I said, it's my business yeah. and I don't think I'll buy anything well, at that level with Poshmark again. Yeah. I mean, and, and we, it's, we get bags in all the time, which is so unfortunate. And we will tell someone it's counterfeit and they're devastated because they bought it for 3,200 bucks on some platform and then they carried it for three years, you know? And so then you know, and then they're, so at this point, it's long too late to track someone down. And, and it's just, you know, it's, it's so unfortunate. The whole, you know, thing is disappointing and whatever, but um, yeah. 
Yeah, that's hard. I bought a fake Speedy off of somebody on Craigslist years ago, met them in downtown Boston. The woman was super professional looking, showed up like, she definitely had like a burner phone because I was trying to call her on my, there were a lot of red flags when I look back, but it's like the power of denial. You want it to be real, you're super excited. She seemed very articulate when I spoke to her. Met her in downtown and like a, she was like in a, tre- in a trench coat, but she looked super professional, yeah. showed me a receipt and then was like, but I really want to hold on to the receipt if you don't mind. So many red flags. Got it. It looked good. The liner looked a little funky. I drove directly to Natick to the Louis Vuitton store and I was like five feet away and they're like, it's fake. I was like, I went, and I didn't have the money at the time, you know, yeah, and it was so annoying. a really big deal. I ended up, I ended up giving it to a friend because I just, I couldn't look at it anymore. Yeah. <laughs> it was like so, such bad vibes. Yeah. And I think that again, you learned lessons from that, you know, like that was I was an expensive I, one. My lessons I tell everyone too, is that the counterfeit receipts are better than the counterfeit bags themselves. So receipts mm-hmm. just mean absolutely nothing nowadays. Like I, I unfortunately will do a Google search for any brand receipt, it's terrifying what you see pop up. So it's, you know, and the other thing that's crazy too, is that there's a, there's a pretty big scam out there where people will, um, they'll, they'll buy like an authentic item from like a, a department store or like a brand, and then they'll buy the corresponding really high level counterfeit. And then they'll return the counterfeit to the, to the brand, but in the original real box with the real uh, tissue paper, the real tags with the counterfeit bag. Jesus. And then the sales associates have been there for like two years. She doesn't know. Right, and, right. and by the way, it looks so real. And they see the transaction in the machine. The bag looks right. Why would you think it's fake? You wouldn't. Pretty darn good. And also the packaging in the box, which is just so, it all looks so. And then they take that bag and they sell it on the real one and they sell it on Instagram. And then they, they get the money back from the fake they return and the brand, you know. So they're doubling their money, which is insane. And do you believe that there are some counterfeits that actually use like the canvas from Louis Vuitton and like the hardware and stuff and then somehow? Yeah, I mean, I will say, we no. We de- no, we've definitely seen. What happens is we call them Franken-fakes actually, where, because the problem is, and I talked about this, I think I talked about this in the, on that Marie Claire um, Instagram or whatever, but there's a book called by Dana, Dana Thomas called um, Deluxe, How Luxury Lost Its Luster. Mm-hmm. I have and a book. <laughs> it's an amazing book. I've read it many times. I love that book. But it talks about um, how, um, you know, these luxury brands and items are, many of them are made in France or Italy, but the truth is the parts aren't all made in France. The parts right. and pieces are not made there. And while, and I, and I don't also like to, disparage items made in China because there's actually really quality products and there's craftsmen in China. It's not like everything made in China is bad quality. Right. There's there's really, and there's luxury brands that make and have the label it says made in China. Um, but when you've got a factory that's selling, uh, making and producing authentic pieces and parts on one corner and the person's underpaid and whatever, and then how much do you have to pay that person for a bag of rivets, you know, for the, for the counterfeit guy that's on the other corner. I just, you know, we've definitely seen some weird stuff. So sure. It's not, it's not, it's not not the most, it's cheaper for the counterfeiter to just 
use fake parts because they look really pretty darn good and most people would know. So for the most part, it's not that, but we've seen it. I personally have consigned with Fashion File. So oh. I have to say that the process was very easy. I like the buyout process. So I, I do consign with the real real as well. Yeah. But my experience with Fashion File, I liked more. And I know it's a more limited brands, right? That you can send things into. And it's limited as like there's no clothing, it's all just accessories yeah. and yeah, yeah. shoes, which is fine because that's usually the stuff that I'm sending in anyway. Um, but I liked the process. I liked the buyout system. It reminded me of when ThreadUp used to do buyouts back in the day, like yeah. very, very long ago. And that's what it made me think of. Um, I don't know. There's just something about the buyout program that makes me feel more confident, I guess, as someone who's consigning like, okay, this is what I'm going to get. And that's it, you know, and it's coming into my bank account. There's no, you're not worrying about it being discounted. You're not worried about someone returning it. Like you are just getting the money for the product that you're sending in. And I love that. And that's what we really, we feel like that's how we would, we like it. And so we found that's what our customers like over time. And then also we deal with a lot of resellers who will just like, maybe they've tried things a lot on Poshmark. They've got them on eBay and they're sitting around. They just, they just have cash flow issues. Like I'd rather freaking sell that thing. Finally get the, the money out of that. And then like buy more inventory because it's not moving for me. And so we tell people all the time, like, try it on, because once Poshmark's taking 15% or some of these, it's like, we yeah, have a 20%. We, okay. Yeah. Our, our average margin is 28%. So I'm just saying some things were pretty close. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, if you're like, what's the 8% difference on that item, is it right. worth it? Yeah. Keep trying. But if you want to just get the quick money, we sell to resellers all the time. We're kind of like, they're like end of life. Well, I gave that a shot. Lots of mom and pop consignment shops, same thing where it's just like, you know, I've tried the thing I love about that. I think it's awesome. Like I'm, a, I love consignment shops. I, I don't want them to go away. I love no, shopping no. in a mom and pop consignment shop, but I love the idea that, that you take your item to a consignment shop, you drop off the Chanel bag. Nobody locally buys that for, for 60 days or whatever. And then she just sells it to us. The customer doesn't know the customer that who's selling thinks that their consignment shop finally did it. Thank you. Mm -hmm. And so she's able to make that person happy. Even if she's taking a little bit less of a cut, it's better goodwill and like a, a moment for her. She's more likely to get more stuff. And she gets, rather than just give the money, give the bag back. And so I'm grateful for that. I think it's fun that we're able to do that. And you can only really do that with a buyout offer because no consigner wants to add another 45 days to the all the, you know, it's already been sitting in the shelf. So. so Sarah, is that your over, that is your overarching model that you do upfront buyout, or do you have the option that people can consign? How does it work? For like, for like 15 years, we gave you the option and like 94% of the time people would be like, just give me the money. Like, you know, um, and then there were certain times with a big ticket item that people were like, okay, well, I'll give it a shot at that but when we're when we're taking the risk up front we pay you up front then you get all the money up front if we're saying let's put this on consignment if it discounts it discounts so we're going to share the percentage and people are like look that's a risk you you take that risk mm -hmm. so so um for probably the past you know basically from the beginning 94 percent of the time people will take buyout but over the last like five years we've switched and we just don't even offer the consignment model to anyone unless sometimes people are like you know i'm selling there's there's a few times we have we have the ability to create that type of a, a of a arrangement but it's like sometimes we'll have something we're like 
this could be special. Like we sold one time, a um, we sold the, for the first, the first time we got like a, it's like a little cassette bag that it's a Chanel bag. It looks like a cassette tape. It's like clear. It fits like a credit card, no phone or anything. It's like a little, it's got a little, it's like, it's so quirky and weird. And we're like, I don't know. It could sell for a thousand dollars. I don't, we've never seen one before anywhere. And, or more, I mean, what if Miley Cyrus wants it for concerts? Right. So we actually, we said, we'll do it on consignment because we want to start high. If we, if we're, if we have to just make the safe offer and we're going to say, maybe we're going to start at a thousand, you know, so we'll give you 700 for it or whatever. But if we're on consignment, we can say, listen, we'll take it on consignment. We're going to post it for $10,000, you know, and we did and we got it. Wow. So, because we're like, I don't know. And the crazy thing is when that sold, then all of a sudden we had people selling us their cassette because they're like, whoa, that was, I didn't know that that went for that much. We, and then we never got that again. Like it was at that it's point. time thing. It's probably Miley or something. Like I don't, it's right. like quirky, weird Chanel stuff. But I mean, like, I don't know what, it just was sometimes it was like the right person at the right moment. It's so rare. And if anybody had been searching for it, there was no yeah. way we could find it. And did yeah. you have a reference for that cassette? Like, were you able to look in the archives of Chanel yeah. and yeah. I mean, we knew we knew all about it but we didn't know how how it sold in the resale market so yes we knew the year we knew the season and all the information about the chanel bag we just had never seen it on the secondary market at the time and this is like 2000 you know 14 or 13 or something like that it was a while ago but wow. i just remember that was like we're like if we just it's that kind of thinking where we're like this could go crazy right. but i don't know so it's very rare because most things we sell, we have a really, and at this point we've got 20 something years of data that we've kept really well archived. We have a pricing engine that tells us all about those old historical sales. But if there's something that's like, oh gosh, this is special. This could be, or not, because sometimes right. you think something's go special and it's like, mm, dud, you know? Mm -hmm. You just don't know. You don't know. And so we're fine. Like we'll take the risk on it. But if we're like, we, if you want to share in the risk, let's start this higher and see what we can do. But recognize if it doesn't sell for that, we're gonna have to discount it down and then get to a normal amount. So if we would have sold started at 10 grand and then it we discounted 10%, 20%, 30%, then it goes to last call, it could go to 50%. Mm -hmm. And then sometimes did it if we went too crazy, everything we have sells as long as the price is right. And because we buy it ourselves, we'll just discount it till we sell it. But right. if it's yours and it's on consignment, you might want it back. So we just we don't do that. We just offer you money and wow. Good to know. Yeah. Um, is there, I, so we have a question on here that I want to ask you, what are your um, top three best-selling handbags on Fashion File? I mean, the thing that's interesting is you, I mean, you would think like, I don't know if you'd think something different or not, but it's kind of what pops into your head, like what you would imagine, like the Louis Vuitton Neverfull is a popular bag because tons of people want it and tons of people have had it. And so we just yeah. sell so many of the standards it's like the first i feel like it's the first bag so many people go to because it's yeah it is it's i'm still of, under a thousand dollars retail yeah now, I think. Yeah, it so. Is, yeah so it's like it's more yeah. a little more accessible and so it's a great you know and so really like the louis vuitton speedy we sell a ton of speedies mm -hmm. so many and why because it's actually still a popular bag it's still mm -hmm. available retail the price is ever increasing but you've got like you know since the eighties. So you've got so many decades of opportunity for us to get more of those bags. So what's interesting is people always say, say like, 
what's hot? Like, what are you selling the most of? And I'm like, that's, those are kind of different questions, <laughs> meaning what, there's certain things that are hot and they're like, we can't keep them on the site for more than an hour. You know, like they're just flying off the shelves, but like, we don't have a ton of those. And like, you know, we'll only get, it's super hot because there's just not very many. And then what do we sell the most of every day? It's all those standards. It's this Chanel classic flaps. Mm-hmm. It's the monogram standard pieces, you know, that you would imagine. So, yeah. I have a theory right now because small bags are so popular yeah. and Daniela and I are both like big bag people. Yeah. Um, and I said, I said, I think we should buy up all the big bags right yeah. now because nobody is like, they are like the cheapest things on these websites right now. The pendulum has to swing back. It always does. Right. It always does. And it, it always does like it, it, the bags that I'm like, wow, that is really ugly. Like that is just soured. They come back. I mean, it's just like, it's nuts. Like the Dior saddlebag. That was the worst bag. It was when it came out as like a hot and then it was the worst for like 15 years. And then now hot again, you know? Wow. Yeah. So I'm not a fan I mean, of it. these tiny little bags that people are going crazy over. And I yeah. think, gosh, even just from a material standpoint, like I just said, yeah. let's buy all the big bags and just wait. Smart, smart. There's probably something to that. Yeah. 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 Right. I'm glad I have your approval. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to roll with that. <laughs> I, I will say I'm seconding the motion. They all come back. So if there's a thing, the opposite will come back. So yeah, absolutely. it's a matter of time. We just have to invest and wait. Yeah. Also. It's like, it's like how, yeah. How much can you invest and hold? Right. Yeah. Right. Cause we, we actually sell, we don't hold anything. And so we'll sell snow boots in June and mm-hmm. would it be smarter to buy the snow boots and in June when they're cheap and then like sell them in Christmas. Yes. But we just, we just move things, but probably people could buy seasonally too, and then sell them at the right time and do better. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I keep muting and unmuting as the lawnmower is going oh. outside and the dog walks in the room. <laughs> We're very professional here. Just, this has been I don't want it to end. We still have a couple more questions. How are you I know, doing Sarah, we could talk to you on a weekly basis. No, I know you're so nice. No, I, I can do, I can do one more question. Let's do one more question. Okay. Well, I, I appreciate that because yeah. I feel like we've taken a lot of your time. Yeah. And like, you know, we have to wrap it up. Go ahead, Daniela. Um, well, the last question that we'll end with is just, where do you see fashion file in the next five to 10 years? Where do you yeah. see the company going? Uh, the thing that I'm excited about is that I think that what's happening with resale is just super exciting. Meaning I love reverb for musical instruments. How cool is that? Sideline swap that I'm able to buy my son's sporting gear used. And there's like specialty places. What's fun for me with resale is the fact that there's selection. The fact that if you want a Louis Vuitton Neverfull, you can probably buy one for $500, $400. If you don't care if it's trashed, if you don't care that the pachetta is beat up and it's got nail polish melted on the inside, you can buy it for cheap. Or if you want to buy it in next to new condition and every condition in between at every price point, you can buy that. I love that. I think it's just amazing. Um, and I think that everybody, we're all adding technology and scale to something that just makes it funner, you know, just more fun than ever. Um, but I think that the way that we do it with the buyout model is really the modern way just to take it out. You know, we're in five new market stores right now. We're opening five more at, by this, you know, end of the summer. Um, we've got five more that we've signed contracts for. So by February, we'll be in 15 stores. We want to open our own locations. 
But again, selling online and just making it convenient for people who are never going to download our app or send us their products to get us their item. Because we think that this is the modern way that you just, you know, that you're able to get kind of an instant payment for those things and be able to spend that on something that you really want, things you're not using. Um, and so I hope for Fashion Files that we're like a household name, that when you think about, we have no awareness still, which is great. Like for you and people who love handbags, we've got awareness. But in the general, you know, world, people don't know about Fashion File. And I feel like I'm totally encouraged by that. I'm not, I'm, I'm like, if we're as big as we are right now and nobody knows about us, what about when they do? Right, imagine. So, you know, yeah, so just that that when you think about, I've got a Chanel bag to say, oh, you should take it to Fashion File. Like just that, that, that that's a household, you know, kind of just a global resource help, you know, for people as a household name. That's I cool. have faith in you. I think you're going. Thank you so much. I agree. And I can't wait to see even what Thank the next you. year has in store for you guys. Yeah, it's exciting. Thank you so much. Well, Thank, Thank you for you your story with our audience. And again, thank you so much for taking time out of your day to talk yeah. with Daniela yes. and I. This was wonderful. Thank you so I much. I appreciate it. So thank you. I love talking. As you can tell, I love talking about this. So. I love it. I love it. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you, right. Sarah. Bye-bye. Bye. Hey everyone, thanks so much for listening to this week's episode. This is just a reminder that Thrifters Villa's Patreon is officially live. You can find us on patreon.com backslash Thrifters Villa. It is just $5 a month where we're going to offer you bonus content, extra episodes, a free downloadable a month, and live events. So make sure to check us out there and we will see you next week.